Ask the people in those areas. Ask them to make a judgment. Run tests where they test the quality of the services. Listen to people. Put first the people that you're supposed to serve. You'll get your decisions right more times than wrong. Welcome to episode 349 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. Jonathan Chambers from Connexon is becoming somewhat of a regular on our show. He's back again, and this time he's here to discuss an issue that's arisen regarding last year's Connect America Fund Phase 2 auction. Christopher and Jonathan talk about the award that went to satellite internet access provider Viasat. There's questions surrounding the company's request to retroactively change some of the project eligibility requirements. It appears as though the FCC is considering honoring Viasat's request. In addition to the effect on other Internet access providers who bid but did not receive federal funding, the issue questions the integrity of the process and the Commission. Jonathan, who used to work for the FCC, talks about the importance of including local perspective and experience when making these types of decisions. Jonathan and Christopher also discuss possibilities for how people at the local level can let government agencies, such as the FCC, know their thoughts about these kinds of decisions. Now here's Christopher with Jonathan Chambers. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bids Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, talking to an old favorite guest, John Chambers, a partner with Connexon. Welcome back to the show, John. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for asking me. When you were last on, we, we talked about the Connect America Fund auctions and uh, a lot of the things that went right, maybe some of the things we weren't super happy about. Um, we're going to pick that up a little bit today with some, a little bit of retrospection, perhaps, and talk specifically about something that, that has gone wrong and, and in many ways has actually gotten worse uh, because of other um, developments since then. Um, but first, let's just briefly remind people, John, if you could, what was the Connect America Fund auction for, for people who might not remember? So the auction was a reverse auction, meaning the federal government was offering funding in exchange for delivery of service. This goes back many, many years when the FCC had decided that it was going to change its funding of telephone service uh, in rural and high-cost areas to fund instead the combination of telephone, voice service, and broadband service. And over many years, the FCC developed a mechanism for doing just that. And the mechanism is an auction mechanism. Um, the first larger scale test of this auction was held last July and August in what is referred to as the Connect America Fund 2 auction. There will be follow-up auctions of that one because uh, not all of the areas of the country were bid out. Um, not all of the areas of the country have yet uh, been opened up for auction. That was the first and in many cases a test case of if you hold an auction, if you offer funding, will you get companies willing to serve high-cost rural areas with high-quality broadband service? And in large part, the auction was a huge success. Uh, there were bids across the country. In every one of the 30,000 census block groups, um, there was interest in bidding. 
in the time since the auction was closed, the FCC is engaged in that, that next step, which is to confirm the ability of companies to fulfill their obligations, to gather the paperwork, to collect network diagrams, to go through what is uh, called the eligible telecommunications carrier process at the states where funding was won. Um, all of those steps, which are the, the precursor to actually giving out funding and having the companies that bid on the areas agree to start building networks and providing service. The very first of the authorizations for funding uh, have been prepared over the last just several weeks. So we're, we're in that phase. Uh, it's been six, seven, eight months, but we're in that phase now of the FCC reviewing state commissions reviewing, companies responding to requests, and this, this uh, as I said, this sort of phase of authorization so that the companies can get about the work of building networks and providing service. And John, your company, Connexon, works with rural electric cooperatives to provide fiber service. Uh, you've been um, contracted with uh, cooperatives that have gone after these uh, subsidies. You've worked with cooperatives that have not needed to go after them or have chosen not to go after them. Um, but that's your um, background for several years now and where your um, expertise in this uh, comes from as someone who watches it very closely. Yeah, so years ago when I was uh, at the Federal Communications Commission, I discovered through the analysis that the commission staff was doing uh, that there was a real uh, cost advantage for six, eight, ten separate reasons. A real cost advantage in building fiber networks in rural areas if you built leveraging the existing infrastructure of a rural electric cooperative. I became fascinated by those advantages, by the history of these co-ops and the opportunity that they had to build world-class telecommunications infrastructure in areas where no one else would build or could build. So um, when I left the FCC some years ago, I started working with electric co-ops in order to build, plan for, operate, design, every, everything from soup to nuts to deliver high-quality broadband service in rural areas. Uh, and, and the company that, that, um, where I'm a partner, we formed what we call the Rural Electric, Electric Cooperative Consortium to bid in the CAF2 auction last year. So we were a participant in the auction. Um, one funding across the country, um, a total of $186 million over 10 years, all to do one thing, to build fiber to the home networks, um, to offer gigabit speeds uh, in areas that are currently unserved and areas that, that um, really have no other prospect of getting gigabit service, the same levels of service you can get in most of the country today. And so I think it's it's worth noting that we're not going to go into great depth about rural broadband and satellite. Um, I think it's worth saying that, that we think that there are many reasons why satellite is not a good long-term solution. In particular, uh, these um, the, the, the standard satellite we see today, uh, which may be capable of high throughput but has latency problems and, and other problems, including very high cost. Um, but 
I, I might sum it up this way. And John, you can jump in to to correct me or to you know add on. But the um, you know, Viasat won more than a hundred million dollars in the auctions. In many ways, I, I kind of felt at the time. Well, I don't think it's a great investment, but at least people living in some areas will have subsidized satellite while we wait for something better to get to them. And and then the Reconnect program came along, and this is a program out of the Department of Agriculture, six hundred million dollars for rural areas, and said that any areas that were getting money from the Connect America Fund um, phase two auctions uh, would not be eligible effectively. Um, There's a little bit of nuance, but effectively not eligible uh, for this money, which in my mind changed everything because then communities that get Viasat money went from, in my mind, it's saying, oh, it's kind of a waste of money, but there's maybe a mild benefit to it, to actually this is a very bad situation because getting money um, for Viasat now means you're not eligible for the real money that matters to build high-quality networks to your region. It's a difficult puzzle that the federal government, state governments, others have been trying to solve for many years, which is um, the the only reason anyone is engaged in this, anyone meaning the the government agencies are engaged in this, is is because of market failure, and not market failure in any profound sense, just simply where there's a lack of decent broadband service, there's a lack of a lot of things. Lack of uh, lack of decent cell phone service, lack of cable television service. It's the same network economics that play itself out over and over again. Um, and so, the government has devised ways of trying to subsidize or give grants or, uh, in order to get service out to high cost rural areas. Uh, and satellite is a part of that. It gets it. You know, it's a it's long been recognized as part of the solution. Um, the difficulty is that, at least to the way I think of it, is that satellite today, uh, satellite in the past, and you know, I'm not making predictions about the future, but the likelihood is that satellite doesn't now and won't deliver the same quality of service that you get through other technologies, um, fiber to the home, for example. So if the government is going to make a decision to spend the public's money, part of the question is how long, how long is that funding cycle? And, and does it preclude any other solution for those areas? If you think the something is better than nothing, so satellite, um, not to disparage satellite, but better than what is out there today. Uh, and what the government is doing is buying some capacity on the satellite network so people can afford satellite. That is, it becomes uh, more affordable to use the Internet uh, in, a, in a fulsome way. The question is, how long, how long and has that become the exclusive solution in some of these areas? And the the combination of the FCC's decision, uh, which was to uh, permit satellite participation, and then the Rural Utility Services decision to exclude any other funding for any provider, any solution, any technology, if satellite or anyone else 
receives funding from the FCC. That means that in those areas of the country where satellite is the option from the FCC, um, other parts of the federal government, the Department of Agriculture, through their RUS um, programs, they won't fund anything else. That's their decision. I, I, I disagree with the decision, but that's that's their decision to date. If you have satellite through the FCC's program, that's the only type of service that the federal government has decided it will fund for at least the next 10 years, if you follow their logic. That's the cycle of these programs, 10 years. 10 years is an awfully long time in technological development. 10 years yeah. would be an awfully long time for a rural community to be um, excluded from the same types of service, the same levels of service that are available to the rest of the country. I think it's worth noting that over this this period of, of 10 years, it's not like we're thinking of these areas where they're just super remote on top of a mountain. These are areas that may be just a few miles from areas that are getting fiber to the home over the next three years from some of your rural electric co-ops. You know, so these are not areas that are totally inaccessible. We're not talking about Alaska here um, in this case. We're, we're talking about areas that, that people will, over 10 years, move from the areas in which satellite is the exclusive option to a few miles down the road where they may have fiber optic internet service. And so this is where, you know, as you're describing it, you know, I, I, I know that you care deeply about this, but I just, I think the injustice of it, that the community has no say over it is, is staggering. That, that very point you make has been to me the one, the one fatal flaw in government funding programs uh, of this nature. There is no opportunity anywhere in the process for a local community, for the residents of a community, for the businesses in the community to have a say in the services that are funded by the federal government. Um, this is purely a dialogue between the federal government and in the past telephone companies and more recently um, any other uh, Internet service providers. Uh, and, and by that, I mean uh, it's about the only federal program that the SEC administers that I can think of in which no consumer choice, no consumer preference um, no consumer decision-making is involved at all. It, it's as if you'd say, well, we in the federal government, when I was in the federal government and since I've left, you know, we in the federal government think that we know what's best or we know at least what's possible for your area. I have said frequently over many, many years now uh, that it is not just possible, but it is a it is realistic to build fiber to the home to every single rural home in America. In most cases, you don't need any federal support, state support, subsidies, grants, or anything else. But there are um, there are areas as you get more and more rural, as you get below three, four, five homes per mile where some public support is necessary in order to bring the level of service up to the same level of service you get in the rest of the country. So to me, the question has always been, what do you spend the public's money on? 
and 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 to me also the um you know the related question is if you're going to spend the public's money why not ask the public what it would prefer in the case of satellite service i mean I, there is an easy fix of course which is if the fcc is going to fund one program it shouldn't preclude all other programs um from being available to rural areas uh, if there needs to be some displacement, some trade-off between one funding program and another, uh, well, that's just math. You can figure that out. But what if we're talking about is precluding an area from ever getting the level of service that you get in the rest of the country, where I live, where you live? Well, that to me, that 10-year period of time we were talking about, and that's a digital death sentence. You can't expect a community to attract investment, to attract businesses, to have startup businesses, to keep young people if the community is going to be in a disadvantageous position with respect to the rest of the country and most of the rest of the world. And so this is where, you know, I think I wanted to set that context as we go into uh, the second piece of this discussion which is that um you know which is to to summarize that that in many ways I don't think we would even be having the second part of the discussion if not for the fact that this is so important for these um rural residents these rural businesses that um they not be precluded from a better solution and that's that um because it is now so important um uh, who gets the money and and how it is spent um when we look back we find that that it, it appears that the FCC may quietly retroactively change the rules of the program to advantage Viasat um, rules that that prevented there from being additional satellite bids um, because HughesNet had decided it, it could not meet the standard that was required in order to participate in the auction. Um, Vias had argued it it could meet those standards, and now that the auction is over, it's it's quietly trying to change the standard, and it appears the FCC may go along with it. It's just it's it's mind boggling. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes things sounds so strange that you don't really believe it. So I, I hadn't um, I've been following this, um, but I, I hadn't weighed in on the controversy between Viasat and Hughes, the, both satellite providers of broadband service. Both submitted applications to participate in the CAF auction that we've been discussing. And last year, the FCC adopted um, uh, a rule that they've been working on for many years to set the terms of how do you test the services once once the money has been spent and once the services have been deployed? How do you ensure that the public's money was properly spent? Um, so the FCC adopted these testing protocols um, referred to as the metrics order. And upon reviewing the testing protocol, Hughes decided that it could not meet the voice tests because of the latency of satellite. If you're making a satellite voice call, you still have to do a round trip between you know, whatever your device is, um, the, the connection to the satellite, and then back again. And that latency can be 
half a second, 600 milliseconds. It can be a second or longer, depending on whether you're calling uh, a landline device or another satellite device. Hughes, and this decision was made before the auction, Hughes reviewed the rules and decided it was not possible to meet the, the test. Viasat apparently made a different decision um, because Viasat participated in the auction. Uh, Viasat bid in the auction, won, as you mentioned, in 20 states, $110 million. And then something really um, odd occurred. Viasat and Hughes both asked the FCC to change the rules that had been adopted. Hughes asked them, the FCC to change the rules prospectively, and Viasat asked the FCC to change the rules retroactively. And Hughes has since um, uh, been before the FCC. This is all public information. You can read their comments and their filings um, and explain to the FCC that if the rules were changed, uh, it would be an unfairness to Hughes and the other participants in the auction because it, Hughes would have participated in the auction under a different set of rules. So I, when I said sometimes things are strange and you don't, you know, you wouldn't think they would occur. It does seem to me that Viasat is holding two or three positions that contradict each other. Either it believes it can comply with the rules, in which case no rule change needs to be made, or it believes it can't comply with the rules uh, and is asking for a rule change to be made. If it thought it could comply with the rules at the time of the auction, then I think it's a pretty easy problem to solve. You don't change the rules. If Viasat now believes it cannot comply with the rules, well, that's a much tougher problem to solve because they bid throughout the country. Uh, and their bidding affected other bidders. Uh, it affected our bids. Um, that is to say, the co-ops that I work for would have won more money. And you know, then you get to the really fundamental question of the integrity of the auction process itself. If you're going to change the rules after the game, how can you trust the game? If you're going to change it even in small ways, if you're going to consider, you know, one test um, was was sufficient last year, but now we're going to consider a different test that might be easier to meet, or the test standard might be slightly different. Or the number that you have to to test to should be changed. Even small changes can have sort of fundamental effects on the auction integrity, on the participants in the auction. The easiest thing, of course, to do is to stick with the rules that are adopted in the first instance, adopted prior to the beginning of the auction, which is what I expect the FCC will do. I mean, how could you do something? How could you do something different than that? The FCC has 30 plus years experience in running, considering auctions, running auctions. It is, it is the, uh, it's the crown jewel of, of FCC policy and spectrum policy now in this um, funding for rural areas policy. You don't throw all of that away um, by doing something as uh, detrimental to the interests of the public and the bidding participants as changing the rules after the game. And you and I both know 
different groups that are directly impacted by this. I, I've talked to a, a rural electric that would be seeking money to expand um, under the Reconnect program, the USDA program, to expand its fiber to the home service into areas that are ineligible because they're getting Viasat money. Um, I've traveled to a community that um, is now ineligible, um, and they were going to partner with a local telephone co- uh, company uh, in order to expand service. They're now um, basically out of luck because they can't access the money. And, and you know uh, even more um, different groups that would be using reconnect funds if not for uh, Viasat um, getting that money and taking that money off of the table for those regions. And so I I wanted to, as we're getting closer to the end here, I wanted to note that that we still have yet. um, So there's this issue of the FCC could uh, hold to the rules. I I actually feel embarrassed for saying that. (laughs) Let's hope the FCC stands true and does not change the rules retroactively. Um, But there's a a second line, which is the, the state public utility commissions, they designate eligible telecommunications carriers who are eligible to receive funds like this. And and theoretically, a PUC could say, um, well, this entity, Viasat, uh, cannot, it does not uh, uh, get ETC status because they cannot meet um, the the metrics we've we've decided to create, um, you know, for um, designating certain um, carriers to be eligible. Now, I, I, I'm sure you're going to explain this, and I'm, in some ways I'm just trying to set you up for it, um, but is it possible then that, for instance, the Pennsylvania Public Utility Commission could say, no, we're not going to give an ETC to Viasat, but that, for instance, Oregon would roll over or another state would roll over and, and we would have this sort of split then? Public utility commissions, public service commissions were given explicit authority in 1996 to consider this one, this very question, is somebody that is seeking public support, federal funds in this case, are they, are they eligible? Are they qualified? Are they capable of delivering quality service? That's a determination by states. In some cases, some of the states have deferred to the FCC on that decision, but in other cases, they've done what they've been doing uh, since the late 1990s. So you might get different determinations by different states because the state says is long viewed, the state commissions are a little bit closer to the people than the FCC. And so the states do have um, a responsibility to look out for the, the quality of the service provided. You know, I think this comes back to, to the other point that I was making. For a state to know whether the service is acceptable, it does seem to me that the easiest course for a state to take is to ask the public, to ask the public that it is supposed to serve. The testing that needs to be done of any type of service should be done in the areas where the public is affected. Like, ah, you mentioned Oregon. The people in Salem, Oregon, they don't have any where the Public uh, Utilities Commission sits. They're not affected by this decision one way or the other. But people in eastern Oregon are. People in rural Oregon are. People who live in in where the population is two and three homes per mile, they'll get affected by this decision. So I, 
I've been told over the years that you can't ask people that, you know, you need expert agencies to make these decisions. And what I always come back to is if you divorce policymaking from the people that are affected by the policies, you've made a fundamental error. Here, I think there is a pretty straightforward approach, whether it's in Mississippi or Oregon or Pennsylvania or anywhere else. We know the areas that have been won in this auction where folks would be applying for RUS grants or anywhere else. Ask the people in those areas. Ask them to make a judgment. Run tests where they test the quality of the services. Listen to people. It, it sounds like I'm no, uh, like, <laughs> I'm the farthest thing from a populist. But I did believe when I was in the government, and I do believe now working for cooperatives, that if you put first the people that you're supposed to serve, you'll get your decisions right more times than wrong. If you even ignore the opportunity to ask the question, you've really done a disservice to the people you're supposed to serve. That, that, that would be what I would suggest for a public service commission. Set up a testing mechanism, ask the people who live there, make your decision based on the results, you know, as you get responses from the people in rural areas. They're the only people who matter in this case, certainly not me or you. Well, I very much support that. It seems I'm just trying to imagine what we would tell a person listening to this, um, what they could do to make that happen. And I have to think that, that for instance, um, if their state legislature held a hearing on this and, and made the PUC notice it, or even if you know a few people from a legislature were to send um, letters to the Public Utility Commission um, asking them what's going on here, um, that might be useful. Yes, I agree with that completely. But more important, I think a lot of times folks feel as if they have no voice, no authority, no power in these decisions. It's incumbent on both sides here, both the two sides being the people who work in the government agencies and the people who live in these areas where the decisions affect their lives to be involved. I, the reason that I love working with rural electric cooperatives is that Everything harkens back to a time when these cooperatives were first started in the 1930s and the 1940s, where there weren't a lot of people just sitting around waiting, waiting for somebody to build something, waiting for somebody to come and, and uh, deliver electricity because the waiting time had passed. There wasn't going to be service in those areas unless these membership organizations were formed Unless people did the hard work of putting up poles and stringing electric wire, that start of 80 years ago, 85 years ago, in some cases, continues through this day. It really is the most elemental community-based effort. And that's, you know, it's always been my message to rural areas. Build something. Build it yourselves. Go back to a time in which times were tough. Folks didn't sit around uh, watching cable television and moaning about the state <laughs> of the world. They got off their couches. They got up. They built something. Build something now. And to the extent the government wants to assist, assist in the community efforts. Well, I mean, we are, you know, a country right now riven with division. The only small suggestion I have to anybody is to get off of Twitter 
get off of TV to go out and build something for yourselves, your communities, your kids for the future. And I would suggest government should should support those efforts. And you, uh, you, you can't go wrong by telling people to turn off the so-called news on the TV. From from my point of view, um, uh, you know, I'm uh, I may be a little bit softer on Twitter in terms of saying follow the people who are inspiring you to get out and uh, and build the stuff rather than the people who make you pull your hair out or the people you only agree with. Um, but um, I, I agree entirely, and I think this is something that I was just reflecting on in a recent event I was at. I the time you're talking about was not an easy time. It was a time when uh, if it wasn't their, their local economy that had cratered, it was a threat of Nazism abroad. Um, there was threats all over and people still figured out a way to pull together. We certainly can do better than that in a time of the abundance that we have if people put their minds to it. So um, that's what we try to celebrate. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not suggesting, you know, hearkening back to some golden age, right. <laughs> I mean, the 1930s and 1940s. And it was those were hard times. I am um, look. I've been criticized. You know, Ecclesiastes teaches us that there is a time to tear down and a time to build up. I would suggest that in our country, the time for tearing down is long past. We have been tearing each other down for the last several years, certainly, and will for the next couple of years. I would suggest that we look to the teachings of the past and the way to stop tearing down is to stop tearing each other down and start to build that there is reward in the act of building that this time period you and I were just discussing was a time of a time of building that's how we got out of the troubles of the time bridges and dams and public works and national parks and these electric cooperatives which built electricity to three quarters of the geography of our country over that period of time. I'd say we should build again. This was also a time of great ideological difference then. Um, this was a time in which people were very much divided between those uh, who called themselves socialists. Um, there may have been a few anarchists left over. There was certainly capitalists, small business capitalists. There was a, a great variety, and we found common purpose in building together. So. I, you know, I think I think there's maybe not a, um, I think there may be a correlation between the fact that we have not done as much building over recent decades and that we are so divided. Um, because your experience and my experience is that when we talk about building in uh, these rural areas in which we imagine that there is so much more division, uh, we don't see it. When people are working together for solving pragmatic problems, um, they put the kind of ideological stuff to the side and they work together and they have a good time. So um, you and I could go on for a long time, but but I, let me just give you a chance to uh, agree or disagree. <laughs> yeah, I think there's, um, there's, there's a heck of a lot of value in hard work and building these networks. That, that's what this really is. It, it's hard work. There's no magic. You heard me say before that the internet itself seems like seems like magic. The ability to access information from almost anywhere in the world, the ability to to communicate, to entertain and be entertained, to do all of that instantaneously, it, it, it's got a magical quality. But it's only delivered because of the hard work of people over decades of time. People who put up poles and string wire 
and lash fiber and create and put up buildings and structures and 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 invent new electronics all of that is what enables the internet the internet is a physical thing and and i'm not clever enough to know how to do what is created on the internet but i sure know how networks are built and what it comes down to what it comes down to is hard work and the opportunity to do something for yourself, your community, your future. That's what I really have ever suggested that the government do. Assist those who really want to help themselves in their communities. Ask people what they want and then support their efforts. Don't make decisions for them. We're not that smart to make decisions for everybody in the country. Well, thank you, John. I, I really appreciate you bringing your expertise onto this. Um, it's something we're following. We'll continue to write about and talk about here um, through the ILSR's work. Um, but uh, definitely appreciate the, the work you're putting into this. Um, and let's hope that we make sure that people actually have some sort of say, um, say over their future. Thank you, Chris. Always great talking to you. That was Connexon's Jonathan Chambers talking with Christopher about the FCC and Viasat. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other podcasts from ILSR, Building Local Power, and the Local Energy Rules Podcast. You can access them wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss out on important research from all our initiatives. Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ilsr.org, and while you're there, please take a moment to donate. You can follow us on Instagram. We are ILSR74. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song, Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. And thank you for listening to episode 349 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Music